Hello and welcome to the Cracking Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Anna, editor of TICE, the leading cybersecurity site for security experts and enthusiasts alike. On this week's podcast, I speak with Detective Superintendent Andrew Gould, head of the Metropolitan Police Cybercrime Unit, about how the Met is tackling international cybercrime, how well nation states cooperate when it comes to tracking down the criminals, and what he's learnt from previous work in counter-terrorism that is helping in the plight to clamp down on cybercrime. As usual, I'll be back at the end of the podcast with a cyber tip of the week. But first, here is Andrew in response to my question about how well-educated and informed he thinks businesses are about the current cybersecurity risks. I think... We still have a really, really long way to go. I, th- I think I think awareness of cybercrime and the threat in a broader sense has probably never been greater. But th- I don't see that translating itself into change behaviour, particularly within organisations. And I think there's two reasons for that. I think, firstly, people still think um, we're fine, it will never happen to us. So there's an element of complacency. Um, and even if people aren't being complacent, often often smaller organisations that have contracted out their IT, um, and there's a sense that well, the managed service providers manage their security as well. And we know from what we see in terms of the criminality that we investigate, generally a lot of those MSPs are quite poor. Uh, either they don't understand it, or they haven't invested in it, or they're generally willfully not protecting their customers as well as they should do, because it's expensive and it's difficult, um, and they're rarely held to account for for providing that poor service because because the clients themselves aren't educated enough to understand what they should be asking for and, and demanding and that's not you know that's not criticism of, of, of victims or businesses. This this stuff is quite complicated. But I think I think industry often takes advantage of that. So and, and so you've got the you've got the kind of we're we're covered or it won't happen to us on the one hand or you've got the other side that we're kind of so it's almost this apocalypse now of the cybersecurity industry there are two types of organization those that have been breached and those that don't know it and that doesn't help you don't you don't sell effectively in this space through fear i don't think i don't think that's the right approach morally but i don't think fundamentally from a business model point of view it's particularly effective either because if you look at it from a psychology point of view, if if you if you frighten people that Armageddon is around around the corner and the end of the world is nigh, where well, what do they do? They either run away or put their heads in the sand. They don't think, okay, what can we do to tackle Armageddon because it's too big. So I, I think I think industry have almost done themselves a disservice in in not articulating the threat in a more honest and user friendly way. Um, what would be the honest way? I think. There is no, there is no technical silver bullet. There is no magic solution. There is no one cybersecurity industry provider that's got all the answers. Um, there is no one system. I, I know a lot, a lot of, a lot of what protects ourselves effectively is actually quite mundane and boring, and has got nothing to do with technology at all. Yes, you've got to have good um, uh, technology to an extent, but but actually it's as much people and processes as it is technology and physical security as well so if you take those four things together at a basic level if you put various basic steps in relation in place in relation to those four areas you'll generally be in a pretty pretty good place what are your thoughts on cyber extortion because a lot of companies are now thinking let's just pay the ransom instead of this going to the public and paying a hefty fine i was just wondering what you think from the sort of law enforcement side 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I guess it's the, it's the law of unintended consequence when we look at GDPR, you know, put together for the right reasons and, and, and in principle, from a policing point of view, abs- absolutely support the principles behind it. But it's driving behaviours or, or, or having some unintended consequences that we probably didn't expect and probably should have done in hindsight. If if And, and partly I think that's not because the legislation's wrong, but... but it's it's new, so people are nervous to see how it all plays out. So, if you look at what what we're finding in terms of um, GDPR since May, we expected a huge spike in uh, reports to law enforcement for investigation, and in fact, we haven't seen that at all. What we found in reality, um, speaking to the Information Commissioner's Office and, and feedback we're getting informally from from business, it's almost like the you know the lawyers are taking over almost to a greater extent than they than they did before. Everything's being locked down. Everybody's so focused on managing an ICO investigation. The last thing you know, they've got on their list of things to do is 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 work with law enforcement to actually catch the people that were responsible or get the data back, um, which is is kind of understandable. I mean, individuals and organisations only have so much bandwidth to deal with a crisis. And obviously, the first priority is to get back to business as usual, you know, identify how breaches occurred, mitigate the losses, protect the customers, maintain the value of the company, and all the rest of it. And we understand all that. So, any kind of law enforcement um, cooperation is very much at the bottom of the bottom of the list. Um, partly because of a lack of understanding, I think, in in what we can potentially do to help to mitigate it. But what what we've seen with GDPR is that absolute relentless focus on servicing the, the the ICO requirement nothing else gets a look in which is understandable but it, it's frustrating because it's just giving the criminals a free pass which was not the intention of the legislation. I'd love to know one of your most interesting cases to date and, and how you how you went about getting the criminals. I think of some of the, the big um, those organisations that have come to us when they've had a data breach and then an extortion demand I could think of a global financial services company who came to us and uh, basically said they'd been approached by a, a hacking group who said they basically compromised their, their organisation, taking a load of data and financial instruments. Um, the uh, hackers were then asked, obviously, to provide proof that they'd done that, which they were able to do, so they knew it was credible. They then got in touch with us. We were then able to work with the company to effectively negotiate with these individuals online then do the, the stuff that we can do separately and we were able to identify and locate them very quickly actually um, in Paris so had a, a very quick conversation with the head of the um, National French Cybercrime Unit who very keen in, in doing some joint work so within about 24 hours we had officers uh, met officers deployed in Paris with the French teams French doing real world physical surveillance on on these individuals at the time we were doing what we were doing here and still negotiating with them um french wanted to let that run for a few days to build up a better evidential case which they did uh they then executed a load of warrants arrested everybody involved and um got brilliant evidence off of off of all their laptops um now those sorts of jobs don't happen every day but they are quite common and they're a lot easier to do than, than people realise. The, the international cooperation is obviously absolutely critical to the sort of work that we do. How easy has that been so far? It's been really easy. To, really. You've had cooperation from all sorts of states? And... Yeah. yeah, brilliant relationships within the European Union, uh, with the states 
and individual bilateral relationships with all of countries outside of that. Because everybody everybody sees the impact, everybody sees the damage that these individuals are doing. Yes, there are some jurisdictions that don't want to cooperate, where people are harder to harder to get hold of, but they go on holiday to Spain, they go to other places, they don't know that we're necessarily looking at them. Um, we just wait for them to to pop out, turn up, and then they're very surprised when they get arrested. So these sorts of investigations are... Yeah, they're not easy. They don't happen quickly, but I'm pretty confident we're you know we're operating at the right scale against the right sort of individuals, and um, and nothing stays the same forever. What what is a hard to reach jurisdiction today might not be tomorrow or next year or in five years time. So if we've gathered the individuals, identified the the, the um, you know, got the evidence, identified the individuals, then there's there's you know, there's opportunity in the future as well. So. There's uh, a lot of really, really good work going on internationally. I think, I think the, the the model that we work on, really, that we try and copy is the counterterrorism model. There's fantastic international working relationships. Uh, and many of us that have worked in that space previously are bringing those relationships into this space. Well, no, actually, that was my next question. You anticipated. Uh-huh. Uh, you have worked in counterterrorism. And I was wondering if, if there are any lessons that you learned there that you've carried over into the cybercrime world or... Um, is there a similar way or pattern of working? Absolutely. I mean, they're 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 both they're both resource intensive. They're both um, time consuming, just because of the complexity and challenge that goes around working across jurisdictions, trying to gather the right kind of evidence, um, needing to use uh, legal assistance treaties, and and uh, that that can be slow and time consuming. But actually, stepping away from the, you know, the getting the evidence in a state that, that that we can use it at court is 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 an issue for further down the line. There's nothing if if there's trust between respective policing agencies in different countries, you can share anything and everything on a police to police basis. You just know that you can't use it in evidence. So if you've got that existing working relationship, the the, the sharing of evidence and intelligence can actually happen quite quickly. You just can't use it in court. Um, so that can give you a significant leg up in terms of progressing what you're what you're doing and making sure you're looking at the right people and, and working together. So that international cooperation is is key. Understanding how to get international evidence is key. It's the quality of those working relationships. Um, it's the it's the but these things are really resource intensive, as I said. So it's understanding that you've got to you've got to invest in the in the staff and the capability and the capacity to be able to do that sort of work. And, and although this is volume crime, it's also organised, serious and organised crime. Um, it's also sometimes hostile state actors. So you know, these are some of the most challenging and complex investigations you can get involved in. But they're also some of the most exciting and rewarding. So for as long as we can keep resourcing that, you know, we'll never be able to investigate every crime, obviously. But we don't investigate every robbery or, or every burglary. But what we do try and do is target those robbers and burglars that are committing the majority of those offences. So if they're going back to my old robbery and burglary days, you know, the average robber and burglar might be out doing 10 or 20 offences a week to feed a drug habit or whatever other reason they're, they're, they're doing this for. Well, if we're only solving one in 10 of those crimes, we're still catching them every week. Um, and it's the same principle for, for every crime. You won't necessarily we well, clearly won't investigate or solve every crime but you'll probably catch the vast majority of, of criminals and what we find in rolling out our new force teams across the country over the last nine months or so um, we piloted it in the east midlands first all the forces in the east midlands and they've um, 
they're in a position where we've just done a review of the first six months of this way of working where they're regionally uh, regionally managed by the regional organised crime units but the, the investigations and all the work is locally delivered so you get some real improvements in efficiency and effectiveness but what we've also found is because we've invested in investigation 50% of all of the crimes that reported in those in those force areas in that region have been investigated and already you know, these investigations can be very time consuming take a long time to identify someone and bring them to court but already we've seen 13% of those result in arrests which is which is pretty comparable to um, physical world traditional crime so Already, I think we're starting to debunk some of those myths that are you, it's all it's all East European. It's all too difficult to investigate. No, it's not. You just give officers and staff the right training, the right tools, and let them get on with it. And they will they they will do it, and they and they are doing it. What would you like to see more of from the public? As you said, sort of uh, crimes do go unreported. So, what would you like from them? I think the first thing we'd like to see is is a greater confidence to report. Um, there is that lack of confidence, there is that sense that police aren't interested or if they're not, not interested it's they don't have the capability or the resources and that is that is a challenge um, but particularly in our area where we're looking at, at cyber-dependent crime and we've had the investment that we've got and we're building what, we've, what we're building there is a capacity there, there is, there is a will there there is a desire to start to work to, to better protect and better support the public so we'd encourage people to, to report in the first instance to action fraud Get that investigation, get that victim contact, um, and hopefully that victim confidence through uh, through helping ensure they don't become victims again, and then that that becomes more positively reinforcing because it this this type of crime is no different to any other crime. Um, if if we know about it, we can target it and hopefully do something about it. If we don't know about it, we'll never put the resources in to look at it and tackle it effectively. And we already know, you know at the higher end, there's lo- loads of amazing work going on that, that may or may not ever see the light of day. But so, some of the work that we're doing um, with the intelligence agencies and National Cybersecurity Centre, what we've done in terrorism, we're starting to apply in this space and we're starting to have some impact. Um, what we need to do as police is is market it better, communicate it better, so people understand what, what we do, what we don't do, what we can offer, how we can help. And as soon as we start to see that, you know, there's always a time lag between good investigations and coming to court. Um, when we start to get that regular throughput of, of investigations, prosecutions, people start to see those positive outcomes, then that's going to encourage people to to report even more, which is which is what we want. We know there's a huge gap between what what members of the public report through the Crime Survey of England and Wales, 1.2 million offences last year, and what they actually report to us, which is about 21,000. So that is a huge, huge difference in terms of um, actual crime and reported crime, probably the biggest gap in any any area of criminality, I would would imagine. Um, But by investing time and effort in actually investigating most of that 22,000 and starting to have some good some good outcomes and some good experience. Because often victims don't necessarily expect you to solve the crime because they're quite sympathetic to how challenging often that this can be. Um, but they want they want the crime acknowledged, they want the right advice, they want to feel that they've had a bit of service and a bit of support and a bit of sympathy. Um, and almost often that quality of investigation is, is the cherry on top. But actually more and more of those investigations are resulting in arrests, are resulting in charges and those positive outcomes. Thanks to Andrew, a great insight into how the Met is tackling cybercrime. Now we've reached that moment, our cyber tip of the week. Never share 
or post information that could be used to steal your identity. This includes your birthday, your mother's maiden name, the names of any clubs you belong to, and your address. Thank you for listening. Just a reminder, if you've not heard about it already, our annual TICE event, the European Information Security Summit, is happening on February the 12th to 13th in London. For more information, do go to our website. It looks like an incredible lineup of cyber panels and discussions, so do check it out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week, so do tune in for more cyber discussions.